Workplace power structures often reward conformity more than talent. It's a familiar pattern, it shows up everywhere, including in careers in STEM, that's science, technology, engineering, and mathematics. Shirley Malcolm has spent four decades working to break that pattern, and to make STEM careers more welcoming to people of all backgrounds. She's currently the director of the Education and Human Resources Program at the American Association for the Advancement of Science, or AAAS. Malcolm says that the first hurdle to addressing bias is simply recognizing that the problem exists. To that end, she directs a AAAS program called Sea Change, which works to uncover biases that institutions might not even be aware they are perpetuating. I'm Corey S. Powell, Special Issue Editor at American Scientist. I spoke with Malcolm about the heartbreaking obstacles that she has seen in the STEM workplaces, and to hear her thoughts about how we can do better. It was an intense conversation. It's edited here for length and clarity. It's always hard to tell how much progress we're making. You know, every moment feels like a crisis. You know, from your perspective, I mean, these issues of, of diversity in the, in the workplace. They've been around a long time. Yeah, they've been around for a long time. Uh, you know, I like to think we're doing better, although, you know, every time I feel like you know, we're, we're making progress, then something else comes along. You have a very rich perspective. I'd love to hear your thoughts of we're, what are the biggest successes that you've seen and what are the, you know, the most stubborn obstacles that, are, that still frustrate you? I do think we have made really good progress with regard to women in some areas of the sciences. I will point to the fact that we're at parity in the life sciences and in the social and behavioral sciences, except for economics. We are at parity or above parity. They look at medical schools and women are now the majority of those in medical school. All right. So after I've said all this about the good stuff. We still have issues on the women's side around questions of leadership. Getting advanced into these higher level positions is still a challenge. And I, I'll give you the example of medicine, even though women have been running at something like 40, at least 40% for like 20 years, maybe. You don't see that in the division chairs and the department chairs. You don't see it in a lot of things. That's a real problem. We can get in, but we can't necessarily get up. The challenges on race are so much more stubborn. And I keep telling people race is really, really different. We make some halting progress and we slide back. But right now we're on a downward slope in a lot of areas, especially for Black women. I think that thinking that we've made more progress than we have can lead us to complacency. A lot of the progress has basically occurred because of intervention programs, things that you can put in place, help bring people in, help prepare them, help support them. Those things tend to be soft money funded. They tend to be highly reliant on volunteers. And in some cases, with the increased judicial and legislative scrutiny of a lot of the programs, people are gun shy, not even running them. So the people who are on the other side of this about don't ever use race say, well, we can do it with race neutral, but we've been working all this time and it hadn't happened. And so there's a kind of a hypocrisy to expect that somehow not targeting people is going to fix the issues that are specifically embedded in racism. <laughs> The nature of the racism we're talking about is not about an individual in the way an individual treats another individual. It's really systemic racism. 
it's about where you live, which was probably originally defined by redlining and is now set up like concrete. And where you live affects property values. And where you live affects the quality of the schools that you go to, whether or not you can get good teachers into those schools, whether or not you have all of the accoutrements that go along with quality education. Can you get AP? Can you get well-equipped labs? And um, it's just a vicious cycle. So you don't get a good education and you can't get into a good school because you, don't, you didn't get a good K-12 education. The systemic nature of the problems that we face have not been accompanied by the systemic nature of the solutions. If the people want to stick a Band-Aid on, as somebody described, on a gaping wound, and it's not going to happen. The first thing that has to happen is you got to stitch up that gaping wound. And some fields are tougher than others. Uh, the numbers are better in the life sciences, for example. They're not good. And, and they're not that bad in chemistry. But they are bad in physics. They are bad in computer science or in many areas of engineering. Yeah, I, I would love your perspective on what, what the differences are. Is it programmatic? You know, is it institutional? Why is the problem more intractable in some fields than others? All of the above. In some cases, uh, students are not introduced to what you can do with study in some fields. The lack of preparation hangs a lot of students up, but there's a difference between being underprepared and not smart. Okay? Yes. <laughs> um, I almost failed chemistry lab when I was a freshman in college. I saw equipment I'd never seen before in my life. All right? So I went to George Washington Carver High School in Birmingham, Alabama, and they put that school up there so that we wouldn't challenge them about going to Phillips High School in Birmingham, which had every, every bell and whistle that you could possibly imagine in order to help the students get through. And I think that kind of like in the back of the minds of the power structure, why wasted on somebody like me? I was not going to become a scientist. Right. All right. And if you look up Collegeville, you will see that my high school, the site of my high school is now an EPA Superfund site. So uh, all I'm saying is that the compounding of disadvantage, the systemic nature of the racism that essentially makes it hard for you to dig out. So that, that's a major, major point. Uh, so not receiving the encouragement and support at the right time. Um, I will also say that to give you an example, all right, historically black colleges and universities enroll a fairly small proportion of all black students, and yet they make an outsized contribution to the STEM students and, and an even greater contribution to the baccalaureate origins of students who go on and get PhDs. Now, if they're under-resourced, and they're not necessarily having all the good stuff that the predominantly white, huge research institutions have, right. but they're somehow still over-contributing to these populations. What does that tell you? 
it basically tells me that there is something about the way that they treat the students. It's something about the environment that they provide for the students, the way that they encourage the students. Right, um, so that's the, the culture of belonging. That's it exactly. The culture of belonging, the community, the, the support, the expectations, etc. But you can do that anywhere. You, you don't have to be in an HBC to do that. And, you know, you think about places that are not HBCUs that have adjusted those cultures. There, there, there can be things put in place that they can be welcoming and inclusive places for students of color. But I worry that when you lose a leader or when you have a shift, that in fact, that you can't necessarily maintain that. Uh, which is why we've gone in the direction of of advocating more systemic approaches, mm -hmm. uh, such as the work that we're doing now in Sea Change, STEM Equity Achievement Change, and we see that that going after this in a systemic fashion of looking to see whether the policies, programs, practices, processes, that is the way the institution works. Mm -hmm. needs rethinking to a way that is supportive and welcoming. I mean, there are things that we just don't see anymore. The fish doesn't see the water. We don't see certain things that are that are barriers. Right. I mean, and, and so that means that you have to start, you have to start with a self-assessment that asks you about everything, everything. The things you see are the things that you may not see and ask about how other groups are seeing those things. You mentioned a number of these you know, specific programs. They're not systemic, but have they produced the kinds of outcomes? Do they give you the hard data where you can say, okay, if we can, yes. if we can, if we can systematize this, this yes. is an example of what we can do. Yes, you look at what, you look at UMBC and you look at the production, you look at the output, especially of MD-PhDs. They have the data that essentially shows you that students who are very much like the ones that they admit who choose not to come into UMBC have, have different slopes to the, of, in terms of their outcomes, right? They have those data. That said, you know, they still have issues. Everybody has issues. Even if you're doing great things for your students, the question, there are questions about faculty diversity. There are questions about faculty, diverse faculty success. There are questions about people who are kind of outside of the boundaries of the programs and what have you. So it's, it's a, everybody has issues because these institutions were not created in order to, it, to be places where diversity, equity, and inclusion are normative. Right. So that's one of the questions I really want to drill down on is how do you do that to implement sea change, to institutionalize a fairer system? How do you get everyone to embrace it? It's a, it's a, well, let me give you an example. And one of the things that I think we're in the best time in the world to really look at this, and that is because everything is disrupted. We would never have gotten faculty to really double down on questions about teaching effectiveness. Mm -hmm. And there are things that we know. There are things that we that we know from the research about forms of instruction that are, in fact, more successful for all students but especially effective for students of color and women. So if we know that more active forms of instruction mm -hmm. are more effective, why don't we do it? And this is, this is the case through in a lot of things. We know better, but we just don't do better. 
And so given the opportunity to redesign, recreate, reimagine <laughs> in the middle of a pandemic, in the middle of a, of a reckoning embrace, is that a time to really have that kind of a conversation? I think it is. I think that we can get a lot more people focusing on these issues than we have in the past because everything has been disrupted. Over the years, I've been in a lot of diversity, inclusiveness conversations, and they tend to follow fairly predictable paths. Years ago, I worked for, uh, for the American Physical Society, and there were a lot of meetings and people would talk about the pipeline problem and how are we going to deal with the pipeline problem? Well, see, I don't do pipeline. And, well, that, so that's exactly what I want to talk about because- you know, I don't do pipeline. They talk no, about, no, 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 talk about no. pipeline all the time, and it seemed, uh-uh. you, you know- That, like that lets point. you point back at exactly. uh, somebody else. All right, that lets you, you talk about the fact of the failure of K-12. Nobody acknowledges the fact that those teachers who are in K-12 basically came out of higher ed. So if, if you've met the enemy, it's us. I mean, people teach as they're taught, not as they're taught to teach. And so have you been teaching them in other than active, effective strategies, then that's a problem. I do not as, as, uh, ascribe to the pipeline idea. I talk about pathways. If you're a, if you're in pathways, you're basically there are more on ramps. If you fall off, it isn't like you just leak on the ground. You can basically, uh, like with GPS rerouting, you can just basically bring yourself right back onto the road. <clears throat> And the, the, the other thing that was really striking in all those pipeline conversations, aside from the fact that they went around in circles and circles, they never talked about what happens to people once they're in the institution. They never talk about you know, like how people rise to positions of, of power because that, that's a more dangerous conversation if you're the, that is a dangerous you're the people conversation. in power. I mean, we have we have evidence that that's a dangerous conversation. We look at what happened at MIT when the women start looking around and said, wait a minute, we're full professors at MIT, and yet we're unsettled in the sense that something is wrong here. And when they looked around, something that was wrong was they were being paid less. They were getting less space, all right, If they, in terms of whatever the resources were that they needed in order to be successful, they were getting less of it. They were getting less recognition. They were getting less accolades. They were getting fewer opportunities to be visible. So it's like, yeah, there was something wrong. As one of my friends described to me, you know, the younger women were talking about their their terrific relationships with the kind of older male faculty and, and all. And everybody was kind of like, well, why is the difference? And I said, in one case, there's a more paternalistic thing going on here. And the other one, these people are your competitors. All right. right. So you you don't necessarily want them to shine because there is this myth of the kind of the zero sum game that if they are successful, then you will somehow miss out. There's a lot of that going on and not really an understanding that there are win win opportunities when we collaborate and when we are uh, respectful and treat people as though they have value. That that attitude of, of zero sum game or that you know fairness toward you it comes at a price of fairness to me. I right. Mean, that, you know those are I, I, you know I hear that narrative a lot. It's it's hard to change people's mindsets, and yet once you once you step out of it, it's a very powerful thing. Uh, you know. Hi, yeah, hard. yeah. Yes, it is. Yes, it is. And oftentimes when people talk about this stuff, they cite things that are factually untrue. Their perceptions of things not necessarily what the research tells you. 
what the facts tell you. Okay. I think that that a lot of the kind of political political rhetoric that we have been living with has been based on these false narratives, and it's very difficult to get to people with real narrative with what the real deal is. Which is one of the reasons I think that I like sea change as a model, at least for the for the institution for universities, because you know what it depends on your own data. You know, I've, I've had people argue me down about national data. I, I had this one guy tell me, I said something about women's um, pay inequity. And he says, that can't be the case because the last woman who came in was offered more than the starting, more in starting salary than da, 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 da. I said, and that's an N of one. Let's pretend we're all scientists. Okay. It was like, Everything that he otherwise would have known to do just kind of fell away. But look at your own data. Don't look at anybody else. Self-assessment. Look at your own data over time. What do they tell you? Have you been making progress? Do you feel you've been making progress? What did the, the data tell you that you, in fact, have been <laughs> making progress? You know, so I am hoping, at least with the scientific, scientific and technically trained community, that evidence will matter and that data will matter. I wonder, the COVID moment has certainly pushed a lot of issues into the open about inequality of access. You notice that. Yes, I mean, (laughs) I have noticed that. No, you know, it's striking. And and, I mean, to your point, you know, these are things that are, you know, it's a moment and and a lot of these moments pass. You know, moments are also things- Can be the beginning of movements. You know, what can you do to seize this moment when there is so much discussion about healthcare inequality, uh, about you know the historical reasons for vaccine hesitancy and and skepticism about you know the you know, how healthcare is going to be applied in the you know in minority communities? Because I have seen a, just a, a level of awareness, including a level of awareness of it in myself of things that I had never that I had not really thought about. Uh, you know, as, as deeply or systematically before. Well, I mean, there are levels of awareness in myself about things I just didn't know. And I mean, I, lo- I know a lot of the kind of background that relates to systemic racism because I look at it and look for it. I, I try to understand what it has done, what systemic racism, how, in, how systemic racism has affected our populations, but how also they have interfered with real understanding because we didn't know the extent. It's everywhere. It's everywhere. It's in the research agendas at NIH. It's in the peer review. It's in the panels. I was struck by the fact of how long NIH tried to look to find out what Black scientists were or were not doing that caused them to not get supported. All right. That, that's what everybody looked. What didn't they do? Rather than saying, what didn't the agency do? Right. What message is the agency sending? And at the time of a, of a pandemic and the time of disparities, what don't we know that if we knew, we could better protect vulnerable populations? So it's like this vicious cycle of blaming the victims rather than the institutions. Or as I say, sometimes the system is the problem. I question the way that things are. And, I, and it ought to be possible to question the way that things are. Poor teaching affects everybody's ability to understand. It just happens to affect some people even more in terms of their comprehension and therefore their willingness to hang with it 
until they understand. All right. Research opportunities enables everyone to think about the possibility of going into these fields. It's just that who we give these opportunities to may in fact be skewed by our vision of who we expect to become these people. Right. It's like, where do I start? Right? Where do I start? Do I start with, I say in the sea change kind of a mode, I start with the policies, mission, practices, procedures, processes. Now, where do you start? And I hate to say this, but everywhere. But if you start anywhere, you will end up everywhere, which is the nature of systems, okay? Which is what has to happen. You know, it's fortuitous, I guess, for me. I was trained as an ecologist. So the idea of how systems actually, how the elements of systems interconnect, I'm very, com <coughs> very comfortable with the messiness that is that actually gets involved and all these things are going all around and, and interconnected. That's fine with me. I know that's going to happen and, and I'm, I'm comfortable with that. A lot of people, they want linear pathways. First I do this, then I do that, then I do the other. And the minute this stuff starts to peel off and deviate and come back in, feedback loops and what have you, folks get uncomfortable because they can't control all of the aspects of it. Somebody once told me, if you can control it all, it's not, you're not doing your work. <laughs> the sort of the overarching theme of this issue of American scientists is how, how to build trust in science, how, you know, how to create a more ethical science. And when you hear that, you know, what is, what is your response? How do we make a more trust in science? Yeah. When I hear that, I guess I want to say who's science. People tend to trust people that they know. And the low levels of representation of people of color within the sciences may make it harder to do the kinds of cultural translation that people can appreciate. Essentially, I do code switching all the time between my worlds. And so how do I help people understand that it is to their benefit to trust this vaccine? They are never going to know anything about spike proteins they are not going to care about the structural biology that went into understanding it. They are not necessarily, they don't necessarily know anything about messenger RNA, but the, to a certain extent, they kind of take hope in the fact that somebody who looks like them is actually working on this stuff right. and contributed major aspects to trying to make sense of this. They're going to believe that the work that she's trying to do is trying to save her community, if she says that. I think that, that trust in science, your question is whose science? Whose priorities? Whose agenda? Are we able to find ourselves in that community and find our place in that community? Are we able to articulate to the different communities that need to have that articulation? Do we understand who people trust? Do we understand what motivates different communities? Do we understand where they go for leadership or for comfort or for whatever? I think over time, diversifying our community is going to be absolutely critical, a critical component of building trust in science.
More about this research is available online at americanscientist.org. This has been a podcast from American Scientist, published by Sigma Xi, the Scientific Research Honor Society. I'm Corey S. Powell. Thank you for listening.